Welcome to Shouts of Grace Radio with pastor and Bible teacher Steve Pearson of Redemption Hill Church in Eagle Mountain, Utah. At Shouts of Grace Radio, it's our purpose to encourage you to see the Bible as God's source of truth for everyday life and grace as the foundation for a genuine relationship with God. Today, Pastor Steve continues his study in Mark chapter 10, focusing on Jesus' peculiar discourse with a wealthy man. Open your Bible or favorite Bible app, and let's begin. I want to finish you guys the rest of our time here by looking at the latter part of these verses and what Jesus says. Jesus begins his trip to Jerusalem, and as he does, a rich young man comes up, falls down in front of him, and starts to have this conversation. And for me, this interaction with Jesus, in my opinion, is one of the greatest lessons in the Bible. It, it's, it's probably easily, in, for me, in the top 10. Because at the nucleus of this interaction is a lesson that's ratified by the entire Bible. And listen, it's prevalent in every single person in here's life. What is on this man's mind? as he comes up and falls down, is made very clear in reflecting on the question he asked. Here was his question. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You guys, his question reveals two things. Number one, that he believed that there was an end to this life and the beginning of something else. Eternal life is what he references. The second thing it shows is he was clueless in regard to how to get this something else. Absolutely clueless. Ecclesiastes 5.2 says this, be not rash with your mouth, not let your, don't let your heart be hasty to utter words before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth, therefore let your words be few. You guys, the Bible describes that there is this impassable barrier between God's presence and where man lives on this earth. It was one of the things that that came as a result of what happened in the garden, and you feel it every day, right? As a believer that loves the Lord with all your heart, you feel this tension every day because the truth is you're not in the presence of the Lord like we used to be. There's a gap there between us now. And in the gap requires faith for us to connect with God, right? So you feel that. How many of you would just like, when you're pressing, you got anxiety and questions in life, to just say, God, can you come and sit down right next to me on the bed and just peel back our reality and tell me what to do? How many of you guys have ever asked for that? Some of you guys says, well, he does that to me all the time. We got to talk after church, yo. (laughs) The truth is, You feel that tension there. You feel that impassable barrier. And the only one, the only one who has ever breached that barrier has been the Lord when he left his domain in heaven and he became a man. Every other human has experienced that barrier there. But even though it's there, Amos 4.12 says, prepare to meet your God. Even though it's there, 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, right? So, you guys, even Hebrews says it's appointed unto man once to die, then comes judgment. We know, you guys, that death erases the distance between God's reality and ours and makes the two one. We understand that. That's why there's a fear often associated with death because people that don't know the Lord understand this isn't forever and what happens when those two realities become one and I appear before God. 
we're told, you guys, um, quite a bit about this man's life. But I will say this, you know, from my personal experience, when a person cares about eternal life, it's going to transform their earthly life. It's going to transform you. There's no way that you can believe that there's eternal life, that there's another life when you take your last breath here and live in a way that doesn't prepare you for the next life unless you don't believe that there is one. And so people that, that believe in God understand this is a time, as Amos said, a time for preparation. This is a time where God gets to refine me and things that shouldn't be in my life are, you know, are, are taken away. We understand the importance of that. We're told quite a bit, though, about this young man in just a few verses. The first thing is we're told he was a religious guy, right? In fact, you could say he grew up in the church. It was a part of his life the entire time. When he asked Jesus what he must do to inherit eternal life, Jesus replies to him, and he says, you know, the commandments. Keep the commandments, right? Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't swear falsely, right? Go do that. And what did the man say? I've done them from my youth. Hey, I know that. I've been doing them my whole life. I I grew up in synagogue and mom and dad dragged me to church all the time and they were off doing that and I was in there throwing stuff in the children's ministry and and pinning people on the ground and socking them and and, and writing on the walls and all that other stuff. I've been in church my whole life. I've heard all the stories. I get that, I understand that. So you could say this man was what we would call a good person, right? He was a moral man. He understood, and he even lived his life, and he even said, you know, yeah, this is, don't do this, don't do that. I'm, I'm, I'm one of those. Well, if that's the case, and he was a law-abiding, good, moral man, then there's a problem in the story. Why the question? Why the question? Think about it, you guys. If he's doing everything he's supposed to be doing, he's obeying the law, he's going to synagogue, he's a good moral person, then why the question? The question tells us, it implies that despite everything he was doing, there was some sort of emptiness that was still inside him. He was still wondering where he stood with God. But how could you wonder? I mean, if you're, if, if you're doing all the right things, he still felt he wasn't good enough. He still felt he wasn't doing all the right things or enough of the right things. Otherwise, he would have never asked the question. He was essentially telling Jesus that in everything he did, he still felt lack and he still felt that he wasn't good enough. You see, you guys, it's in this question that I think he reveals his problem. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do? Give me the list. You guys, this man was caught in this religious mind that taught him that the more righteous acts that he did, the more righteous he became. And his question tells us that although he did righteous acts from his youth, he wasn't sensing in his heart the righteousness that one would expect to come from the moral conduct. There was something in him that was lacking there. 
And this is the problem that a lot of people face today. This is the problem when it comes to putting the burden of salvation, though we'd never say that, on you. And you producing righteousness in a godly life that is at a level that is acceptable to God. Because here's the truth. All of us sin. Everybody sins. The problem is when we're trying to be righteous and we're using that that righteousness as the barometer, those efforts as the barometer by which I judge, am I a good parent? Am I doing this? Am I a good Christian? Am I doing this? When we use that as the barometer, what happens when your works aren't at the level that they were on Monday? What happens when Wednesday rolls around and you crash and then Thursday you rebound and you really love God and then Friday you crash and Saturday you crash and Sunday you're lifted up and it carries you through Tuesday and Wednesday you blow it. And so your life is kind of like this and you're trying to pin down righteousness in the chaos. How do you live like that? You end up like this man. What do I got to do for eternal life? I can't figure this out. I want to do good, but I don't do good. The goodness that I I seem to be going after ever eludes me. And the answer that religion gives me, the answer that church gives me, that the pastor gives me, that the bishop gives me, is try harder. Just do more. And I try harder, and all I end up is frustrated and discouraged. Because in the end, I always end up back. It's like, it's like sin is like gravity, Steve. It just pulls me down. No matter how much I excel, I went to this men's retreat and I confessed everything and I just, man, I peaked. And it's like sin grabbed me and said, come back down here, sucker, because this is where you belong. And that's my life, Steve. And that's why I don't even like church anymore because I come and I feel miserable. Do you know who else tried this? The Apostle Paul tried this. He tried this. The guy who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, who's the disciple of disciples, tried this. Would you like to hear what his conclusion was? This is what he said, Romans 7, 7. What then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law did, say, did not say, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandments, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law. Listen, but when the commandments came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised to give me life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing the opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me, through what is good, the commandment, in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment to become utterly sinful. What is he saying? He's saying, I thought life came by keeping the law. I thought life came by the conduct, 
by the rules. Just keep the rules, man, and you'll be okay. And I didn't understand what was inside of me. And Paul is saying, instead of, of it giving me life, let's keep the law, everybody. I found that the law didn't save me at all. Verse 10 says it killed me. Well, how did that happen? Because rather than providing me a standard to live up to, which I would never be able to keep, it identified the sin that was inside me. And when that happened, I became utterly sinful. It demonstrated or it pointed out, this is why you think the way you do. And this is what covetousness, because I didn't know what covetousness was until the law said, thou shalt not covet. And then I realized, oh my gosh, I'm a coveter. And it was supposed to bring me life. Don't covet. And what it did is it pointed out what was already in me and sin came alive and I died. So I thought by keeping it, I would be right with God. Instead, what I found is it made me so much guilty in God's eyes. And what he realized was the law wasn't there to fix his problem. It was there to diagnose it. That's what it was there for. And that's what people need to hear. When you think you're going to keep the commandments, thou shalt not commit adultery. Dude, really? If you look at a woman with lust in your eyes, you're guilty of it. The standard is so much higher. And so when people think, if I could just be good enough for God, and just the conduct, the conduct, the conduct, when they think that, what they don't realize is what God is showing them is you will never be able to keep it. It was meant to show you how wrong you were, to shove you to grace. Because the only way, amen, the only way that you can be saved at this point is if sin revived in you and you died and you're a transgressor and you're guilty, you cannot untransgress. The only way that you could be saved is if something more powerful than the transgression comes and covers it. And that's the blood of Christ, my friend. That's where grace comes in. That is why you will be saved by grace or not at all. You can never keep. You can never keep what was never meant to be kept. The only one that kept it, the only one that Romans 5 says, condemned sin, judged sin while in the flesh is Christ. Because he did live perfectly. And he did fulfill all the righteous requirements of the law because the transgressor couldn't. And now he takes his perfect life and he says, I will put this to your account. That's grace. And that's how we're saved, you guys. What this guy found out was that the law just made him more sinful. And now he's asking Jesus, well, what in the world do I got to do now? Right? I've kept everything from when I was a young boy. You guys, we began by me telling you that Jesus knows every person deeply and intimately. He sees our blind spots, the motives of our heart. And so in his reply to this young man, Jesus reveals his deeper issue. The man says to him, teacher, I've done these things from my youth. Jesus then tells him this in Mark 10, 21. Looking at him, he loved him, and he said to him, you lack only one thing. Go sell all you have and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Disheartened by this, the man went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Verse 21 says that Jesus looked at him, and he loved him. How did he love him? He told him the truth. He told him the truth of what this man needed to hear. Jesus knew, you guys, the man would walk away. 
But listen, he didn't allow the man's response or his potential response to dictate whether or not he would tell him the truth or not. He was going to tell him the truth, and he did. And the reality is, you guys, that in 21st century Christianity, this isn't always the case. We now interpret love as being, well, just don't hurt them. If you hurt them, they'll run. They're already running. And so we tell them the truth so that they can come to repentance. Now, this man's response to Jesus, and we'll end with this, is that he walked away sorrowful. And when he did, it reveals two important things. Number one, he was deceived. He was deceived. He wasn't as good as he thought he was. Remember, he was just saying, hey, I've done this. I've kept the law all the way from my youth. And so what else do I got to do? Did you? Because you know what the first commandment says? You shall have no other gods before me. That's the first commandment. And Jesus goes deep into this man's particular heart, and he tells him, you lack one thing. Go and sell all you have and come follow me. Jesus isn't given a prescription for all the disciples for all time to say, you know, go and sell all your goods and come follow me. He's talking to this man who had a problem, and his problem was he was an idol worshiper. And when the man responds to Jesus by walking away, he shows him that he did place something else above his walk with God, that he didn't keep all the commandments. Bro, you broke the first one. Now let's go to number two. He kept what he thought was righteousness. But remember I said that Jesus comes and he deals with the motives of the heart and the things we can't see. And this man really had a good day when he came up and fell down and go, I'm doing good, but what more do I gotta do? Go sell all you have. Well, that's not a commandment. No, it's a revelation of where your heart is. It's where you are. You're worshiping something. You're worshiping mammon. You're trying to separate, you know, you're, 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 you're trying to separate and compartmentalize your life. But the truth is you're an idol worshiper. And what does the man do? He gets up and he goes away sad. So you weren't as righteous as you thought. Your assessment of yourself wasn't what you thought when Jesus comes and he reveals something deeper. The second thing this man's response to Jesus reveals is he wasn't willing to put eternity first as his question implied. He really wasn't, you guys. He wasn't willing to loosen his grip on the idol that ruled his heart. In this case, you guys, it was his wealth. Now, that's not true for everybody's idol, right? For many of you, that, that may not be the case. But the point is not the wealth, you guys. That's not the main point of the narrative. The point is that whatever idol we hold on to in our hearts Loyalty to that idol always gives back a sorrow that will ultimately, if it's not repented of, lead a, leave a per, lead a person to walk away from the Lord. Always. It doesn't matter what the idol is. Your idol could be religion. It could be something that you've just set up, and I'm, I'm not going to let this go. I'm, I just, this is who I am. This is what I do. I hear this all the time. You know, me and my wife dealt with this early on. She grew up Catholic. She was a good Catholic girl. And so when any, you know, person grows up with an identity, it's like, well, you want to be a Christian? Well, I'm, I'm Catholic, you know? And we just didn't understand what it meant. And there's a lot of times that people won't let go of something because they grew up with it. It's who I am. And God is saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. The whole book is about me. 
It's about me. It, it, it's, not about, it's not about your identity and what you got and your denomination and everything. That was a hard one for me. Like, I grew up in a non-denomination, and then, you know, God pulled me to a denomination. I was like, I ain't, I ain't these people. I ain't any of this. <laughs> you know, like, what is that all about? You guys, there is nothing... There is nothing, if you care about eternity, there is not one thing that you can hold on to in this life and still make the claim that you care about eternity. There's not one thing that's an idol. There's not one thing that grabs your heart. There's not one single thing that God will accept. All of it has to go. He has to be number one on a list of one, right? He's the one that said in Luke 14, you cannot be my disciple unless you forsake all that you have. Is he saying, go be broke and live on the street? No, he's not. He's saying, whatever it is, it's in your heart that keeps you from all that God has for you. You can't have it there. It has to go. I'm not going to compete with it. This man had another option. He didn't have to walk away. He could have embraced grace. Embrace grace. That's, that'd be a great t-shirt. Let's make that. Embrace grace. He <laughs> um, could have embraced grace. He, he could have stopped and realized, man, I, I don't have to walk away from the Lord. I can give up the thing that's keeping me from God. And you know what? Right there, his whole life could have changed. His whole eternity could have changed. Instead, he kept it and he walked away. Walked away with what? Walked away with a little bit of money in life, in his case, at the expense of what? An eternity with God? You be the judge. Is there anything in this life that's worth that? Holding on to a relationship that's causing you to, to, to wallow in sin? Is that worth it? Is that, is that worth giving up or holding on to so you can give up everything that God has for you? You know how many times I've talked to young people and they just don't know how to get over, I just can't, I love him or I love her and they're it, you know, but, but you know, I know they don't know God, but just, you know, I know I'm going to change them. You're going to change them. They're going to change you. I can tell you that. That's been the experience. And so what? They're not worth that. What will, give, what will a man give in exchange for his soul, the Bible says? The answer should be nothing. There's nothing that this world can give you that should replace what God has for you in eternity. Don't sell out. Raise the rent. Raise the rent in your life. Make, make, make the things that come into your heart pass through God first and watch what the Lord will do. And he could have embraced grace. And if he would have, his life would have been very different. Let's stand. Father, I want to pray for all those in here, all those watching online that have heard your word this morning. Lord, soon and very soon, you will wrap everything up here. You'll fold it up like a scroll. Before that, you will shake everything that remains and anything that can be be shaken, will be shaken. And only that which remains is that which can't be shaken, your word tells us. Every person who has their roots in this world and their wealth in this world alone, God, everything will be shaken. But the one who puts their love and their wealth and their interests in eternity, though the waves and oceans roar, nothing will move that.
No one can steal it. Rust doesn't corrupt it. It's an untouchable heritage. Thank you for joining us on today's episode of Shouts of Grace Radio with Pastor Steve Pearson. We hope you've been encouraged to see the Bible as God's source of truth for everyday life and grace as the foundation for a genuine relationship with God. If you have been encouraged in your journey following and learning more about Jesus, we would love to hear from you. You can visit us online at shoutsofgraceradio.com. At shoutsofgraceradio.com, you can listen to all of our episodes, share them online with your friends, and find out more about Pastor Steve. Shouts of Grace is an outreach of Redemption Hill Church in Eagle Mountain, Utah, and a production of Key Radio. Thank you again for joining us on today's show. And from all of us here at Shouts of Grace, it is our prayer that you would grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ.